to the responsibility to protect. Word kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Dr. Chile Ebo Osuji. Dr. Ebo Osuji served as judge at the International Criminal Court from 2012 to 2021 and was the court's president from 2018 to 2021. He is currently Distinguished International Jurist at the Lincoln Alexander School of Law at Toronto Metropolitan University and a visiting professor at University of Windsor. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Dr. Abosuji, you have such a rich history in international law, so I want to just dive in and ask right away, what are your top recommendations to the international community to overcome challenges that have made justice for atrocities more difficult in recent years? Um, And particularly in public lectures you gave recently at the University of Toronto, at ACIL conference last year, and the Stanford School of Law, you talked about adjusting international law in at least two ways. Uh, First, by amending the Rome Statute, and second, by adopting a new covenant on the right to peace. How would those measures improve protection? Thank you very much, Jackie. Uh, It's a great honor to to be with you. Um, And the time of this um, podcast um, is particularly topical. We are at a time when uh, we no longer speak about international um, criminal justice in in the um, uh, as a matter of hypothesis or as a matter of theory. We are seeing its value as we speak. Um, the war in Ukraine or the invasion of Ukraine, to be more accurate, has brought the, the 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 need of this um, discipline um, full square to everyone's um, attention. So uh, it is in, in um, that context that I made the recommendation, or recommendations rather, that um, you you alluded to in the question. Yes, um, I have strongly recommended. Uh, adjustment of international law in two main ways. One would be in terms of uh, criminal responsibility, and the second way would be um, civil liability. Uh, Criminal responsibility is about adjusting the Rome Statute um, in three ways, I see. Um, Three ways. One of them would be uh, to extend the um, um, criminal responsibility for the crime of aggression, to extend it to a rank and file, uh, the military rank and file, in other words, officers and foot soldiers in the field also need to be held responsible for the crime of aggression. Currently, that is not so. Uh, Those who design the norm of the crime of aggression 
for some reason decided that uh, it was best to focus it on political and military leadership of state. If we want really to put pressure against the uh, instinct or rather the um, inclination of um, strong men, usually these are men, to wage wars of aggression when they're in positions of um, power. If you extended um, criminal responsibility to foot soldiers and officers in the field, it will create pressure on the leaders who order them to go to war. There's pressure on them if the foot soldiers and officers are looking at their leaders and saying, what are you doing? You are actually forcing me to commit an international crime. Uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that, or no, I will not do that. So that is what I mean by pressure. So once that pressure is there, it begins to let the uh, leaders deal with it. Uh, whether it's mutiny or whatever, so be it. But the point being that foot soldiers and officers need to be put in a position to say, look, we are not going to commit an international crime by um, invading another country on your order, leader. So we're not doing that, or we don't feel comfortable doing that. So and that's what I mean by um, extending... Um, criminal responsibility to rank and file. The second way to adjust the Rome Statute or amend the Rome Statute is to delete a certain provision in the Rome Statute that has created a gap that is causing difficulty. Everyone sees it. That gap comes by virtue of um, Article 15 bis. Um, paragraph 5 of the Rome Statute that provides that the ICC does not have jurisdiction in respect of the crime of aggression, jurisdiction over the nationals or territory of a state that is not party to the Rome Statute except when the Security Council, UN Security Council, refers a case to the ICC. Uh, aggression crime is the only one of the four crimes in the Rome Statute that has that provision to it. Said Rome uh, ICC, no jurisdiction over nationals or territory of um, you know non-member state to the Rome Statute, except when the Security Council um, refers it. Now, what we have seen now has happened is there's now a gap because Russia is not a state party to the Rome Statute. And Russia has invaded Ukraine, but no Russian national, including that president, can be prosecuted at the ICC for the crime of aggression because the Security Council has not referred the case and will not refer the case because Russia would exercise a veto power to ensure that there is no such referral. But you have a scenario where there's um, an apparent international crime occurring on the territory of Ukraine, but the ICC cannot have jurisdiction over that. ICC can have jurisdiction over war crimes, um, you know, crimes against humanity or even genocide uh, to the extent committed on the territory of Ukraine, but not the crime of aggression because of this uh, provision, this gap in the Rome Statute, 
Article 15, uh, there's a paragraph 5. And because of that, you see um, countries, some leaders of, um, specifically the former Prime Minister of um, the UK, Mr. Gordon Brown, um, scrambling efforts to create a new uh, specific uh, tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression in Ukraine because of that gap. And I say we've seen the lessons from that gap, and that gap was not an accidental gap. It was a deliberate gap. Now, time has come to delete it by deleting that provision. So that's the second, second way. I say the just international law. The third way would be um, to extend within the UN uh, the power to refer cases to the ICC. Currently, uh, the only way the ICC can receive referrals from the UN is when the Security Council refers a case to the ICC. That is what Article 13b of the Rome Statute says. But I'm saying again, uh, what has been happening since the war in Syria and, and, and so forth, and now the war in Ukraine, is we see that the Security Council cannot refer the case to the ICC when uh, some powerful interests in, within the P5 exercise veto power to stop that happening. So this uh, time has now come to consider, and I do strongly recommend adjusting that provision, Article 13b of the Rome Statute, so that the UN General Assembly can do something when um, the veto power has been, uh, should I say, immorally exercised to stop um, justice being done and uh, victims receiving justice when justice cries out to be done. And the only way to do it would be when the Security Council refers a case to the ICC. But Security Council doesn't refer a case to the ICC because someone decided to, as I say, morally exercise the veto power. If that happens, there should be the possibility of the UN General Assembly taking up the question saying, hang on, the Security Council hasn't done what it is supposed to do here. So we are going to try and correct that. So these are the three ways I think I strongly recommend adjusting international criminal law to attend to the need for justice in this time. In terms of the second way to adjust it being the civil liability, civil, li civil liability front, I'm recommending uh, the um, adoption of a new uh, convention or a new treaty, uh, an international covenant on the right to peace so as to make peace, recognize peace as a fundamental human right, which should have been done a long time ago. We have all these rights uh, we see in the UDHR, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the ICCPR, and so forth. Um, but none of them, in none of those instruments, do you see peace recognized as a human right. And you ask yourself, which one of these rights you see in the UDHR, in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and all the other slew of instruments that contain international human rights, which one of those rights can you really enjoy without peace prevailing? Uh, rarely any. Could you, of course, if you're in the United States, perhaps you can say, well, you have the Second Amendment right, the right to carry weapons, but that's not an international human right. The point is to say peace is a fundamental human right. 
it needs to be recognized as such, and the time has come to do so. Now, when you do that in a constrained way to target wars of aggression, the idea being anybody who launches a war of aggression is violating the right to peace, the fundamental right to peace. But you don't leave it at that. It becomes now a matter of the victims of that violation should have a right to remedy. In law, we, there is expression in Latin, ubi use, ibi remedium. In other words, where is a right? Violation of that right entails an obligation for reparation. So if you have a fundamental right to peace, somebody launches a war of aggression that causes losses of life and property and mayhem in people's lives, then the victims now should be able to go after those who commenced or who launched that war of aggression in civil courts around the world on the basis of an international um, convention that has been domesticated around the world. Thank you for that. And I, I think both of those proposals put a very different type of pressure on perpetrators than what currently exists. And in that regard, you know, international criminal justice is often described as a deterrent for mass atrocities, partly because of the idea of pressure on perpetrators. Uh, former ICC chief prosecutor Fatou Bensouda also described the ICC as the legal arm of R2P. Based on your experience, have you seen this deterrent effect to be true? And, you know, are some of the proposals you've put forward to address any gaps where it isn't true? Fatou Bensouda is quite correct to say the international criminal justice is the legal arm of R2P. And uh, more specific to your question whether um, there's evidence of deterrence, uh, it is a question that gets asked a lot. And I'm going to answer it in two parts. Part one would be to say let's um, not, uh, it's important for us to keep our eyes on the ball. Now, by that I mean this, um, deterrence is a, basically a corollary value of international criminal justice. It's a corollary value, in my, in my view. The primary um, value is actually retribution, um, you know, um, punishing those who have violated core norms that the international community feels we need to use punishment, uh, apply punishment to these kinds of violation. So that is, in my view, the primary value of um, international criminal justice. And that value is immediate. The victims of the violations see a measure of justice. Uh, it may be only consolatory justice or measure of uh, so be it, but at least the victims are seeing that um, someone paid attention to their plight as opposed to whoever committed the violations enjoying impunity um, in, in that regard. So we see again, retribution is the primary value of international criminal justice, exactly in the same way that retribution is the primary value of criminal justice in the domestic setting, the same thing. Just that in international setting, we extrapolate that onto the international plane. And oftentimes people get lost with that question. Well, 
um, how can we assess the value of international criminal justice, specifically the value of the ICC? Do we see deterrence? I'm saying, first of all, let's focus on the primary value and not necessarily on the deterrent value. So that's what I mean by eyes on the ball. Punishment of those who commit um, atrocities. Uh, in, we call this use puniendi. Use puniendi, the right of society to exact punishment upon those who violate its core norms. So that is a primary value. Now, just a corollary value, um, deterrence. Again, the same thing um, in national settings um, does the criminal code or the criminal justice system in the US, in Canada, UK, Nigeria, wherever it is, um, does the criminal code uh, deter people committing crimes? Well, the same question we can answer it in relation to the ICC and whatever value we give to that answer. And in national setting, uh, we are free to give the same answer to the ICC or the international setting. But um, more specifically in terms of beyond those normative considerations, beyond the normative considerations, uh, specifically on the evidence, yes, indeed, I am able to speak to the deterrent value uh, of international criminal justice at its level. Um, now, there is some research, by the way, that has been done by some political scientists and uh, social scientists on this subject, and they answer that question, yes, there is. That's so they have evidence that they've done research and published um, showing uh, the uh, you know appreciable or tangible um, evidence of that deterrence. So the research is there. But from my experience as well at the ICC, I'm also able to um, share some information in that regard. Now, I was presiding in a case uh, out of um, Kenya for uh, the, the post-election violence in Kenya. I was a presiding judge during the trial of the vice president of Kenya, Mr. Uh, Ruto. In the course of that trial, we had expert evidence um, from an expert who testified that uh, before the post-election violence of 2007-2008, which eventually came to the ICC as a matter um, to be prosecuted, before that, uh, previous elections in Kenya had seen a political violence that kept going up and up until that bubble of 2007-2008 passed and the matter ended up at the ICC. And the ICC started prosecuting people now, the subsequent elections in Kenya have seen significantly less political violence, and this expert attributed that declining violence to the fact that the ICC stepped in and was prosecuting people. So that is concrete information I thought I could share. The second concrete information I could share was in my position as the president of the court, I um, was in the position of meeting um, senior leadership of uh, countries, presidents and ministers, and, and so on. And I can tell you that um, some political leaders, uh, some of them president, vice presidents from the African region, actually told me, as well as 
uh, civil society leaders told me that the presence of the ICC, the work of the ICC, has had a significant impact in the reduction of political violence during elections in their countries. This is first-hand information given to me by those who lived the experience. So I'm able to share um, that much. So yes, indeed, the, the, um, um, there is that tangible value. But again, I return to the original premise of um, that I started, the let's keep our eyes on the ball, uh, the ball being um, the primary value is uh, retribution. And as we ask ourselves, do we value, um, you know, international criminal justice for deterrent value, we must also ask ourselves, you know, the, the, rather the, um, should we say, the uh, one point of departure for that, view would be how we also appraise the criminal justice system in the national setting. I think in, in that response, you touched on um, something that I think we struggle with in R2P, which is that, you know, similar to how do you talk about deterrence? You know, how do you talk about prevention that has has worked? And I'm glad that you raised the Kenya case because Kenya is often referred to as the first um, real example of RTP in action. So I was wondering, in this context, what is, from an international criminal law perspective, uh, what is your assessment of the continuing value of RTP as a norm? I think it's a very, very important norm. And you, you, when uh, you, you, we began um, talking, you referred to um, Ms. Ben Sudan's take, which I completely agree with, that international criminal justice is the legal uh, arm of R2P. The R2P, in my view, continues to be important. One thing it does that stands out in my view is um, it stresses to states that the idea of um, sovereignty of states, and that is a fiction, that political legal fiction called sovereignty of state. R2P stresses it as it is not a one-way street that's seen only in terms of the right of um, the leader of a state or leaders of state to do whatever pleases them with their national population. Uh, R2P tells us, no, um, um, sovereignty also entails an obligation, an obligation on leaders of states to uh, protect their people and to respect the rights of their people. Whereas failing in that regard, um, it, it is a matter of concern to the international community and the international community will intervene under the coordinated efforts of the United Nations to try and resolve the problem. Basically, uh, international community will intervene, maybe, of course, how to be being a um, UN concept. Uh, you could see how it was pointed to the efforts of the United Nations. But um, you could very well see the uh, variants of that uh, under the ICC as well. The Rome Statute is not, um, strictly speaking, part of the UN, but it's also an effort of the international community to intervene to protect 
um, you know, um, populations that have been subjected to severe violations where the national leaders have failed to give that protection or where indeed the national leaders uh, are the culprits of the violations. So it is an important uh, point for the R2P. Again, stress it. Uh, uh, sovereignty is not all about uh, the rights of those who lead states. It also entails a modulating uh, responsibility to protect, if not uh, international communities will do it. After all, that, that expression we use in law, uh, respect for human rights is an obligation agarum, so obligatio aga omnes, obligation on the whole world. That's what that Latin stands for. So because it is an obligation to the whole world, rather, um, uh, leaders of states owe also a duty to the whole world to account for how they treat human beings who happen to be in within borders drawn um, around certain land territories. So that is the important one resounding importance of RTP. And the idea, by the way, um, returning to Fatou Ben Suda's take of, of his international criminal justice um, being um, legal um, of responsibility of um, RTP, we can actually trace this notion back to the origins of the idea of criminal responsibility in international law, and that goes back to 1919. The Paris Peace Conference of 1919, there was a debate um, at some point when the, um, you know, the Prime Minister of the UK, uh, David Lloyd George, the Premier of, um, of um, France, um, Georges Clemenceau, the um, Prime Minister of Italy, uh, Vittorio Orlando, and uh, President uh, Woodrow Wilson, they were, they were called the Big Four during the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. And they were debating um, the uh, uh, decision to prosecute the Kaiser of Germany, um, as something that Clemenceau and Lloyd Judge were insistent upon that must happen. Um, the debate was, well, that hadn't up until then. Well, this is a new uh, precedent, an uh, unknown idea in international law. Clemenceau and um, David Lloyd say, yes, we know that it's a new idea, but we want to change that. From now on, we want to make sure that even leaders of states who do these sorts of things, commit war crimes or engage in wars of aggression, must be held accountable. It is incredible to see how the seeds of these ideas evolve over time. Um, and we keep coming back to things um, that may have been proposed many, many decades earlier. Um, I want to turn to something that I find interesting about your career. I sort of did a, a very short bio at the beginning and undersold um, how incredible your career has been. You've spanned roles from UN-mandated tribunals to OHCHR uh, and then to the ICC most recently. 
And um, I think this question actually touches a little bit on one of your proposals from the beginning regarding that issue with the UN Security Council and international justice, because we have um, a similar challenge with R2P that so much of R2P has to go through, or so much of international action under R2P has to go through the Security Council. Um, And so in recent years, we've seen the General Assembly become creative on R2P and become creative on investigative investigative mechanisms. Um, We've seen this kind of evolution from UN-mandated tribunals, like what you had served on, to the ICC, to now these sort of um, broader investigative mechanisms, like the mechanism on Syria. Uh, So I'm curious, how have these mechanisms contributed to the landscape of international justice in your view? Perhaps one one big takeaway from that question really is is how difficult it can be, how difficult it ordinarily is to establish ad hoc mechanisms to accountability. Um, I say that because the project of creating the ICC, which is now the Permanent International Criminal Court, started soon after the Second World War, soon after the Nuremberg experiment. That's when the UN um, mandated the ILC, the International Law Commission, to study the question of visibility and desirability of creating a permanent um, international jurisdiction for international crimes, in other words, a permanent you know, mechanism creating a chamber within the International Court of Justice or establishing something apart from the International Court of Justice being an international criminal court. So that project started soon after the Nuremberg experiment. But you know what else happened soon after the Nuremberg experiment? The Cold War, right? So what happened was that the Cold War literally, or right, figuratively froze this effort to create permanent international criminal court. But then late 1980s, early 1990s, we experienced that spring of hope on the international plane. And it was in that context that the UN Security Council now got together and created the Ad Hoc Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the Ad Hoc Tribunal for Rwanda 1993-1994, respectively. And while that uh, spring of hope prevailed, those who had always wanted to have International Criminal Court now use the opportunity to bring back that project and quickly um, realize it. And knowing that uh, we cannot be doing Ad Hoc tribunals all the time, there's a need for justice in these circumstances of, you know, heartbreaking atrocities. So yes, let's have an international, permanent international criminal court that will do justice in every instance because ad hoc tribunals, um, that's not the way to go. So that ICC, um, we saw, was created in 1998. But then we're now back to the Cold War. Um, I now speak about the first Cold War uh, and then we are in what I call the second Cold War, right? But um, what we now see in the second Cold War is back to what things used to be before the thawing of the first Cold War. Nothing is moving anymore in the Security Council. They cannot create new 
ad hoc tribunals anymore, and the ICC has not received the optimum support that it should have received from states, the uh, United States uh, governments who are preoccupied without talking the courts and not playing into the hands of people who traditionally didn't care too much about human rights, um, uh, respect, and all that. So that's to see that, that's what I mean by ICC has not received optimum support that it, it needs to receive. Um, by now, one would have expected that the situation in Syria would have been referred to the ICC, but that didn't happen because uh, people use the veto power to block that happening. So that's how we now ended up with um, making do. And the making do was the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights basically instigating the UN to create these um, investigative mechanisms uh, in an international law in general. You refer to them as effectively commissions of inquiry. So their, their purpose is to gather and preserve evidence that could be used uh, at an opportune moment. It could be states that want to use it. Um, states who want to exercise, for instance, um, universal jurisdiction, or if in future there is um, a change of government in the countries and they want to do prosecution, the evidence is preserved, or if for some reason the, the ICC is given jurisdiction, so the evidence is preserved. So that is the purpose of these mechanisms, collect and preserve evidence, because that's the best that could be done in the circumstances that they, the mechanisms, is, uh, we cannot speak about them in terms of evolution as such, as if it is something different from what exists now. It is basically effectively the same sort of thing. I guess given the different ways that the information from these inquiries uh, and mechanisms can be used, I'm also curious what your thoughts are on um, the place for universal jurisdiction over international crimes. It is a very important question. Again, it is. Um, um, oftentimes, people tend to um, think about universal jurisdiction as um, a by-the-way idea to international criminal justice. I, I tend to have a different view of that. I do think that it is a central idea to the project of accountability, uh, basically the, 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 in the ecosystem of um, accountability using the law. Universal jurisdiction is a critical element of it. And as I said here, we said, well, the, the work of the um, Syria investigative mechanisms and all that will help um, exercise of universal jurisdiction. We see that happening now. Um, um, in, in Germany, Germany has, is now playing a leading role in uh, putting, um, injecting new life into the idea of universal jurisdiction uh, in was it 2021 or so. Uh, in 2021, there was a German court in Koblenz uh, rendered um, its judgment on the prosecution of um, a, um, you know, a Syrian um, official who had been implicated in um, you know, war crimes in 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 Syria. Uh, we have another court in in um, I believe uh, 
the Frankfurt app, I think. Also engaged in, in trial. I don't know whether they're finished now, but um, I know there was a case going on there. And German courts have been, um, you know, basically leading um, the, the current effort on universal jurisdiction. And um, within the last few days, I believe, uh, no, I think it was last week or earlier this week, there was news about the Swedish court, court in Sweden, um, rendering judgment in a case that happened during the 1980s and early 1990s in Iran during the reign of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, a massacre that occurred uh, in that country. Somebody was prosecuted for it in Sweden um, recently. So that is universal jurisdiction. And it is an important piece of um, the justice project, not a side show. Uh, let us here remember that the Rome Statute in creating the ICC, it stressed that the primary responsibility of states, sorry, it is the primary responsibility of states to do justice. The ICC's jurisdiction is only complementary, a court of last resort when justice is not done at the um, national level. And the ICC cannot do all the cases that cry out to be done by way of justice. ICC can't, doesn't have the budget to do that. If the ICC was going to do that, it's going to be a huge, huge, huge operation indeed. So states have to step up and discharge their primary ob obligations to do justice. Naturally, the first port of call would be the states on whose territories those violations occurred. But if they cannot do it, then other states should step in and do it. And the way to do it would be through um, universal jurisdiction. And we see that now fully in play. Um, again, let's remember that even the um, Geneva Convention places an important um, place for, primary, for universal jurisdiction. Um, if you look at Article, I think it's Article 50, or 49, somewhere there, 4950 of uh, Geneva Convention number one on um, of 1949, uh, you see the, the you know universal jurisdiction right there. States, member states to that convention, obligated to search for and prosecute those who have committed grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions and punish them. And if they don't do that. And they should do that regardless of the nationality of the culprit, by the way. And if they fail to do that, then they should hand over to another state that has established a prima facie case who wants to do the prosecution itself. And so there is no limit there. So that is um, universal jurisdiction for you. So it is a notion that's um, very much part of international uh, criminal justice system. And that's as it should be. Thank you for that. That was really fascinating. And so since we've just observed recently um, 
World Day for International Justice, as well as the 20th anniversary of the Rome Statute. Uh, Given your extensive experience with the court, what do you think are some of its biggest achievements in its, you know, short life so far? Um, Thank you. The, um, the, the, I would say there's a lot of things we can get to the micro level of um, what the court's been able to to achieve. Uh, We can talk about some of the uh, uh, decisions people have. Um, people talk about um, one of them would be uh, the one that finally clarified in 2019 that under uh, international or customer international law, international customer international law never recognised immunity for for heads of state who are charged uh, before international uh, tribunals or courts. Um, for international crimes. The international law never recognized immunity for them. So that is an important uh, decision. But I think normatively um, speaking or taking it to um, a broader level of abstraction, uh, the fact of the existence of the ICC itself is an achievement in the sense that it is there reminding everyone that um, it is no longer free for all for people who want to commit international crimes. Um, there is a live risk that those who commit international crimes will be gone after by the ICC somehow. So that is uh, a live risk, of course, um, to realistic extent of those who are not state parties to the Rome Statute. But Um, The point is to say the ICC being there has now filled a gap that existed before its creation. So that is in itself the major achievement of the system. But beyond just the matter of being there, the court also has demonstrated that it can do justice and take it seriously in the sense that um, the court has registered some convictions. The court has also registered some acquittals, just to say that the court is not a one-way street that does only one thing. Anybody who comes to the court um, must expect to be convicted. Now, the court has said, this is a serious project. It is about justice. And those who come to the court will expect to receive justice. And justice includes acquitting accused persons where the evidence is not strong enough to convict. They must be acquitted. And the court has demonstrated that that is justice and that is an achievement, regardless of the um, unfortunate view of those who uh, protest whatever there is, an acquittal at the ICC. It is really unfortunate, but justice includes acquittal of people for whom the evidence is not strong enough to achieve a conviction. So the ICC has demonstrated that. ICC has also demonstrated that uh, it will do its work without being, and will not succumb to being bullied. The court, um, when I was there, we saw the height of, efforts by states to bully the court, be it 
the um, the government of Kenya at the time tried to sell to pull in the court the African some leadership of the African Union. When I say African Union, I need to stress that not all of Africa and there are many African states who believe in the court and supported it always. But at the AU level, there were some um, leaders of the AU who um, were not pleased with the court because the court was going after Omar Bashir and the president of Kenya at the time. But the ICC stood firm in, in doing justice because it should. But not only the, the, from the African Union, you saw efforts being made to bully the court from um, the governments. Now, I must stress this. Uh, when I say governments, it's important. It's oftentimes uh, when people speak in terms of countries, they extend conducts to citizens. No. But we saw efforts being made by uh, the certain governments of the United States, specifically the Trump administration to pull in the court. We saw specifically the government of um, Israel at the time, Prime Minister Netanyahu, tried to pull in the court. But in all of this, the court stood firm to say, look, we are going to do justice as we see it. So that is a demonstration of um, the metal of the court's seriousness to do its, its work. So those, in my view, are uh, important, important achievements. So um, something that the international community should be very proud of. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.